Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense, Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Blog Talk Radio. Tonight, we'll go back in time to seasons past, when 22 men graced the rugged fields of yesterday, fighting for one more first down, one more yard gain, one final score that would bring victory after 60 minutes of battle on the gridiron. Tonight, we'll explore the world of gridiron greats. Welcome to Gridiron Greats, football history of its memorabilia on the Gridiron Greats Publishing and Broadcasting Network. In conjunction with Swick Enterprises, and we're live from the Southport, North Carolina home of Gridiron Greats Magazine, and I'm Bob Swick, publisher and editor of the magazine, and I'll be your host for the show. Gridiron Greats is the only publication in America that focuses upon the history and memorabilia of the North American football game since its inception in 1869. We'll cover 150-plus years of football history and memorabilia, and can find us on the web at GridironGreatsMagazine.com. It's at this time I'd like to introduce my co-host. He's a senior contributing writer to Gridiron Greats Magazine, a football memorabilia historian, specializing in pre-World War II items, in particular Red Grange, and also Seattle Seahawk items, in particular Steve Larger. He hails from Portland, Oregon. Mr. Joe Squares, Joe. Welcome to the show this evening. Uh, very excited. Very excited for today's show. We've got a big show Great coming gap. up. But mm-hmm. before Great. we get started, we're going to chat a little, and we're going to talk about auctions and what's going on with the auction world, Joe. Yeah. For our listeners... Bob and I uh, spend a lot of time texting each other, you know, between shows. One of my favorite topics is auctions. I, as I've mentioned before, am an auction hound. I love auctions. Whenever people are like, are there too many auctions? Is the market saturated? My response is always an emphatic no. I love auctions. I love seeing stuff that comes up for sale. I love looking, perusing, tracking, you name it. And I don't know if anyone's noticed, but right now there's not a lot of auctions going on. Heritage just and at an auction, there wasn't that much interesting in that auction. Huggins and Scott, which is usually uh, good for one or two really cool things. Uh, I was very excited. It opened, I think, on Wednesday, and I uh, logged in early and went and looked through it, and not much. eBay-esque, as I've said before. And I just kind of shook my head because right now there's not much going on. REA ended a little while ago. We're about three weeks away from one of their monthlies. Nothing in Huggins, Heritage. It's just, as I mentioned, there's kind of a, an auction desert going on right now, and I'm a little down. So I don't what, know. Do you, what do you think the re, what do you think the reasoning is that the items aren't there? Is it there's just way too many auction houses now competing for a limited mm. amount of material? Is there uh, a situation going on where longtime collectors or collectors in general are not trying to sell their items? 
<laughs> they're preferring to hold hold on to them? Are there is there more private sales going on? Show sales? What are your thoughts about that? Good point. I I think we've seen people in the past who don't do a lot of trading or selling leading up to the national. And I mean, I know that's uh, four months away, but we're getting close. Uh, uh, Al Christofoli, who owns Love of the Game, remember he was on uh, on the show about six months ago? He's mentioned to me before, he sets up at shows, et cetera. He's mentioned before that football collectors tend to hold on to their stuff. They buy and hold. Uh, they, they, they love hanging on to collectibles. Whereas baseball collectors, he noted, tend to buy, and then if they want to buy something in an auction, they will sell something to buy. So he's like, you, you don't really have the in and out flux of stuff, you know, for football. Whereas in baseball, and and it's also there's you know three more, three times more baseball uh, uh, collectibles. Perhaps that helps. But I think, and I've I've seen this in action. Football collectors tend to hold on to their stuff. Uh, I'm guilty of that. I know, uh, you know, you know, Jeff is guilty of that. You, I mean, a lot of the collectors we know hang on to their stuff. Once you get it, you're like, oh, I love this piece. I, I, I don't want to get rid of it. Very rarely do you see somebody exiting, you know, what they've collected. Yeah, it's interesting you, you say that because over the years I've been approached by several auction houses saying, you know, uh, you know, when you're ready to sell, contact us, blah, blah, yeah. blah. Uh, yeah. And I always kid them. I said, do you know something I don't know? You know, am I, is my time ending quickly <laughs> and, and I, I need to get rid of my stuff? And uh, long story short, you know, they say, oh, no, 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 no. We're, do, we're making inquiries, so on and so forth. And then I always tell people that the last things that are go out of my collection are my actual football card set run from 48 to 2015. And I know I hate to see, I'll hate to see that go for the simple reason. I know a lot of those cards will be forced to be slabbed uh, to get more money. Mm-hmm. Them. And I, I really don't like, I really, really don't want to see that happen, but I guess that's inevitable. And uh, my Packer, my Packers collections that, uh, you know, I've spent a lifetime putting together. Those are the last two, you know, areas that are going to go. Everything else I got is pretty much expendable, is sellable, so on and so forth. So that that also brings me to, you know, we talked a little bit about this before, and I am going to mention it. You know, there are some collectors out there who I feel are somewhat unrealistic on how much they want to pay for an item. And yeah. I, I use a simple exa- I use a simple example for for all intents and purposes. Say you have a card that's worth in a book, book value is a hundred dollars. Okay, you're at a show, you have the hundred dollar card on your table. A prospective person comes up to the table, say, "Could I see that card?" So and so, yes. Um, what are you looking for? I said, "Well, the price is a hundred dollars," and I would always say, "I could do a little better." Uh, blah blah blah. So then they're hemming and hawing, uh-huh. and then they say, "Well, I'll give I'll give you twenty five dollars for it." So to me, it, you're not serious about wanting to buy the card by offering me such a low ball bid. Now that person or that that mentality of that type of negotiation is that I'm going to really try to you know get this card cheap, blah blah blah, so on and so yes. forth. And maybe yes. maybe one one time out of a hundred it works for him, and the other ninety nine times it doesn't. If you do that to me, I respectfully take the card from you and say, uh, I'm not interested at that price, so on and so forth. Then they'll make Absolutely. the second trip around the table. Second trip around <laughs> the table and say, well, what, what, are you really, what are you really going to sell it for? What do you want to – so at that point, since you've annoyed me with the $25 bid, I'm going to really nickel and dime you now. I say, well, I want $90 for it. Oh, that's way too high. That's way too high. Okay, make me an offer. I said, and then I'll say, make me a realistic offer. So then they go up to 50. So they say, you know, it's only worth $50. That's half of 100. I said, okay, uh, I'm not going to sell it for $50. And if they really want it, then, then you got to play the big game going back and forth on how much you want to sell it. And I'm saying to myself, I was thinking about it actually today. It's funny. I did my first show in 1983. So it's 40 years ago. And my next, I'm doing a local show here in uh, Wilmington in May, and then I got the national in, in July that I'll be doing. And I'm saying to myself, you know, it's interesting, over 40 years, how the whole hobby has transpired and changed, evolved, so on and so forth. And I remember at the last local show I did down here, I had a, a younger guy, probably in his 20s, he said to me, how come you don't have any graded cards? 
And I said, I don't really do anything with graded cards. I really don't like them, so I don't sell them. I don't collect them, and I don't sell them. And he was just fascinated I actually said that to him. So he says, well, is there a market for all this stuff? Because I have, you know, I have paper items, I have publications, and so on and so forth. I do have cards, but the cards aren't graded. And, um, you know, I, I, engaged the, I engaged him to try to educate him. I said, what you're looking at on my table is a lot of historical stuff. And it's stuff you should be reading and learning about the game, you know, whatever you collect type of stuff. And um, I, I think, I, you know, in a way, I kind of woke him up a little. And I gave him a couple copies of the magazine. I gave him um, a Sports Illustrated I had. He, was, he kept looking at it. And I said, just take these. And uh, I said, read them. And so when you get time, read them. Oh, that's Listen good. Something. You, you know, you've got the insight from being hobby. behind the table. You, you've got the insight from being behind the table. Uh, I've only, I, I've sat behind, uh, you know, John Spano's uh, table a few times, Josh Adams and yours, and I, I, I yep. lack the patience for someone coming up and saying, "I'll give you twenty dollars for that hundred dollar card." I, I, I don't know. It, uh, you know. Uh, I, I think you touched on a lot of it. Private transactions, uh, the football community is pretty tight, so people tend to know each other. You tend to know who's got what, and if you decide to make a run at it, uh, you know. I mean, uh, right. I know. but you're always looking for those outliers, just that I love when an auction opens up a good one. You know, a Huggins, you know, a, a good REA, and – my, you know, Mile High is coming up. I love it. And I'm just always looking for that one or two things. You know, as my wife says, it's like, you know, I have a little bit of money burning a hole in my pocket. But I'm just always looking for one or two good things. And uh, it just seems like that hasn't happened in about four or five months, you know? Yeah, I believe it. I believe it. And I, and I, can, I can see it, too. I mean, I'm seeing stuff that, you know, to me is not auction-worthy, number one. And number two, I feel bad whoever consigned it because they're not going to get any money for it type of thing. So, uh, you know, it's, it's an interesting market to say the least. And it's interesting to see, you know, how it plays out, especially as material becomes more difficult to obtain. And again, if you're an auction house, especially if you're a smaller auction house, you're constantly looking for material. And, yeah. you know, you're trying to find stuff, so on and so forth. And, you know, if you're a dealer, in a way, depending on what you have, you know, you're always looking for inventory at the same time, too. And, I, you know, I did it. You know, I, I used to do a show back in the late 80s, and any money I made, I would just buy material with it. So I had more inventory. <laughs> uh, until, the point, until the point in the mid-90s, that was it. I was done. I knew I, I did not want to be a dealer full-time. This was a hobby Football more than anything rich, else. We call so, that. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah. but it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see, in my opinion, what's going to be at the national this year. Because I saw what was at the national yeah. last year, and I was not really yeah. overly impressed uh, with with what was there. Um, and back in Chicago, in in uh, Rosemont, there at the convention center, it's going to be a little better because I think you have a better mix of uh, dealers than you did in Atlantic City this past year. Uh, where you had definitely the East Coast uh, influence more than anything else. So uh, Either way. I know uh, I know you'll be uh, in track and in, uh, informed on auctions coming up over the next few months. <laughs> a uh, I might be uh, popping smoke here on uh, some upcoming auctions, but a gentleman on VFC had some amazing unopened. Uh, that he threw out yeah. a couple months ago, and I inquired, as I am uh, really loving my unopened collection lately, uh, including a 52 Bowman large nickel pack. Uh, I literally only four of these have been graded by PSA. Uh, this one was in a GAI pack, and uh, it, it's hard to know if it's good GAI or bad GAI, you know, when Baker was there. Right, right. So, uh, right. Uh, inquired. We had a couple emails back and forth, and the gentleman decided to just uh, consign it to Mile High. So, I yeah. I am looking forward to Mile High auction here. Hopefully, in the next month or so. Uh, good for you. It popping because I know there's some good unopened gonna, uh, that are going to be in that uh, that auction. So, 
And, and you heard it first tonight on our podcast, Gridiron Greeks. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure this member of VSC won't mind me, uh, you know, I know, you know, dripping I know. out as it's all good for him getting his money. Uh, but yeah, uh, pretty rare stuff. I I used to have a 52 Bowman nickel pack. I remember trading it a uh, PSA eight Dutch Clark 35 Chickle Ooh. at an at a, at a Chicago National about uh, ten years ago. So, wow, uh, and one of those really cool trades. So, yeah, loved it. That's good. That's good. All right, our special guest is here tonight, and I don't want to keep him waiting. I'd like to introduce him at this time. Our special guest tonight is recognized as one of the leading authorities on the history of professional football in the country. He's the award-winning author of the books, When Football Was Football, The Chicago Cardinals and the Birth of the NFL, Cadets, Cannons, and Legends, The Football History of Morgan Park Military Academy, and Bears versus Cardinals, the NFL's oldest rivalry. He's a lifelong resident of the south side of Chicago. He first became interested in the history of pro football after discovering that his father was a draft choice excuse me, of the Chicago, now Arizona Cardinals in the 1940s. Because of his knowledge of the early days of the professional game, he has been a resource for articles or reports in Sports Illustrated, the New York Times, Chicago Magazine, the Chicago Sun-Times, the Chicago Tribune, the Daily South Town, the Arizona Republic, NBC Sunday Night Football, CBS Sunday Football, ESPN, and many others. He has appeared on the WGN documentary Football in Chicago, a Comcast sports special on the Chicago Bears, on radio stations such as WVBM and WSCR in Chicago, as well as the Global Sports Broadcasting Network. He hosts the One Football with Football podcast on the Sports History Network, which was one of the eight global finalists in both 2022 and 2023 for the Football Podcast of the Year, and is a frequent guest on numerous football podcasts also. He was recently a speaker at the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio, on the origins of the National Football League, as the NFL celebrated its belated 100th anniversary. And in 2022, he was the recipient of the prestigious Ralph Hay Award that was presented by the Professional Football Research Association for Lifetime Achievement in Pro Football Research and Historiography. Our direct quote, he is also the author of When Football Was Football, the Chicago Cardinals and the Birth of the NFL, making him the world's leading and only Chicago Cardinals historian. That's a quote from Chicago <laughs> Magazine this past October. I'd like to welcome to the show this evening, Mr. Joe Ziembo. Joe, thanks for being on. Well, Bob and Joe, thank you so much. Uh, what a profound introduction. <laughs> I, see, I don't take myself real seriously with that Chicago Magazine uh, quote. <laughs> I probably am. Cardinals historian, but uh, thank you for taking this risk. I I heard all this great news about auctions and shows and a Dutch Clark uh, card, and now the show comes to a screeching halt, so I apologize. (laughs) (laughs) Joe, I think, by the way, that is the longest uh, guest introduction I've ever heard. (laughs) I was able to go grab a a pop and come back while you're being introduced. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's going to come out paperback soon. <laughs> yeah, and the, well, in the 10 years we've been doing this, uh, that has been the longest introduction, but it's it's well uh, noted. Uh, I mean, you you are, yeah. uh, in my opinion, and, and again, we were talking before the show, I, I, seem, I feel like I've known you for years because I've been a member of the PFR, cool. PFRA for many, many years now, and I've always read your stuff there, so on and so forth. So I feel like I know you, but we've never communicated. So I'm I'm real happy you took time out of your schedule to come on the show. And I'd like to ask you, can uh, you tell our audience a little bit about your uh, new book, uh, The Bears versus the Cardinals, the NFL's Oldest Rivalry? Uh, thank you very much. Yeah, the, the book came out recently. 
And it wasn't written specifically for when NBC football comes on and tells us that the Bears and the Packers are the NFL's oldest rivalry. Uh We include some corrections in the book, whether it be about that. But uh, I wanted to go back as kind of a follow-up to my earlier book on the Cardinals and go a little deeper and to some of perhaps some misquotes or miscues in the history of both teams, and uh, as well as add stories that I really enjoyed finding over the years in my research. And research has changed quite a bit. Uh, for those of us who try and be football historians, we've gotten away from sitting for hours in front of a microfilm machine and hoping it works and hoping you can read your copies. We're online now. We can find out so much information. So using the combination of time research and some of the new techniques for technology, I tried to recreate the the history of the two teams, who are the the two oldest NFL teams. The Bears and the Cardinals are the only ones left from 1920 when the league started. So kind of supporting that, I went back and talked about when the Cardinals really started and found out stuff about George Ellis of the Bears and when he went to high school and college. And as far as I know, much of this information has never been published before. So the whole idea behind the book, which actually started, I think, 2010, was to provide additional information on the history of both teams but show how intense and ferocious the rivalry was from 1920 through 1960 when the Cardinals left for St. Louis. Mm. Wow, very nice. Joe, that, uh, this is Joe here as well. Uh, yeah. uh, I, you know, in our in our email exchange when I invited you on the show, I mentioned uh, I've, I've got a weird bookend, as uh, you heard in my bio, of Red Grange to Steve Largent. Uh, so uh, I am personally a huge Chicago Bears fan uh, and and a, and a Red Grange fan. Uh, I I ordered your book because I I love reading up on stuff like that. This is your book is one of the best I've read on the topic. Seriously, and uh, I I am really enjoying it. I'm about seventy five percent of the way through. Uh, just you you touch on you, you really dive into details on some really really good uh you know just history of the teams and i really appreciate you writing stuff like this first of all and thank you for those kind comments i hope it didn't help you sleep as well but thanks for getting through so much of the book so far. <laughs> it's good not very often am i sitting there reading a book while my my wife's you know like well what's that one i'm like this this and i'm like here's a picture of george Howell. it's just you just did really, really well, uh, and, and I, I loved reading it. Um, uh, I, 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 I try to do a lot of research on people prior, and one of them was I listened to you on a on another gentleman's podcast, uh, and you you mentioned in that as you were rifling through boxes, and you kind of alluded to this in your introduction uh, in your book, you were rifling through boxes of your your dad's contents, you know his stuff, and you bumped into. A uh, you know it you know you bumped into something that you know he played for the Cardinals while well, he went to uh, he went to training camp. Can you yeah. uh, elaborate on that a little bit? How you discovered your dad played for the Cards? What set you on this journey? Oh, thank you. It was it was a fun experience because my dad was a great football player, but never talked about it. I knew him oh. growing up as a high school football coach, and I hated football because I had to go to all these boring games and sit around during these boring practices. And now it's my life. You know, I just can't get enough of it. <laughs> football researching. But he, he had a box, as you mentioned, of stuff. And as we move around through life, we take boxes with us, stuff, souvenirs, yeah. maybe mementos. And I never really looked into the box of his stuff. And then one day, I think after our 14th move or so, I said, wow, is this stuff we can get rid of? And much to my surprise and delight, right on top was his contract with the Chicago Cardinals. And it was a really lucrative contract. He got paid $110 a game, but he had to provide his own shoes and shoulder pads. That was the NFL <laughs> in the 1940s. Wow. Wow. But he went to a uh, smaller school called Benedictine. No, it used to be called St. Benedict's in Atchison, Kansas. And he was an All-American and there. 
And way back then, uh, 30s and 40s, there wasn't really this division of schools into one and two. We had schools mm-hmm. and we had small schools. So it was considered a small school participant, although they played Creighton and Wichita State and New Mexico State. And then uh, after he got those honors in, in college, he got drafted by the Cardinals. And that's where some of this old correspondence is so intriguing. Uh, for example, even though there was a draft, he had a letter from George Hallis of the Bears that he kept. Uh, I should say his mother, my grandmother, kept that shows Hallis's interest in him as a player. And the Lions sent the letter. Wow. So that was really neat. And of course, it built up a little starting of my collection of old football documents as well. But during uh, the training camp, which was in the south side of Chicago, uh, he got hurt, re-injured his knee, and now would probably be, you know, a minor surgery, arthroscopic. But he chose to check himself out of the hospital and left the camp. Thing, which he told me a few years later, uh, not that he ever talked about it, that he can make more money coaching high school football than he could playing professional football, believe it or not. But, again, that's how it was way back then. Wow. Did, did you ever talk to your dad about his football times? I mean, you said you went to – did you play football? You said you went to practices and games. Yeah. Myself, I uh, played part of one season in high school. And because I think of my not liking football – even though I grew up to be about the same size as him, 6'4", and, and too chubby now, but uh, I might have been able to, to play a little bit. So, no, I didn't really play football. played part of one year in high school. I played basketball. But as I said, he didn't really talk about it. Uh, I was too little to understand what he was talking about when he was coaching. He got out of it uh, in the early 60s and uh, didn't get back into high school coaching. Then we lost him in the early 70s. So, uh, we lost him way too soon, but it was after he passed. That's when I started being inquisitive because I'd meet players who are, yeah, men or players or other coaches who knew him. I went to, When I went to high school, one of the football coaches there asked, are you related to Joe Zampa? And I said, yeah, that's my dad. So he was one of the best. And again, you say, well, someday I'm going to probably look it up more, but that took me into his uh, midlife when I finally decided to research it. But no, he didn't yeah. really talk about accomplishments. And unless I really dug into it, uh, didn't hear much. And, and, and so I thought that he was very humble about it. But that greatest generation was pretty humble. Oh, they were, geez. <laughs> you, yeah, you, you mentioned you bumped into somebody at a, at a Cardinals reunion who said he was at training camp with your dad. Yes, this was uh, an incredible experience. In 1997, when I was, before I'd ever written a book on the Cardinals, I, I went and wanted to see if I could meet some of these guys or talk to them if I could. They were celebrating the 50th anniversary of their last NFL championship, which is still the last NFL championship for the franchise. But I was talking to Billy Duell, who was an all-pro end for the Cardinals, and he didn't put the name together, but I said, yeah, I was looking in for information about interviewing some of you guys and finding out more about my father. And he said, your father, well, what was he like and where was he? He said, well, he would have been a training camp with you back in 1940. And he said, oh. And then he, when I told him more, he said, you know what, I remember him. Yeah, he described what he looked like, uh, his big hands, which he was known for, and I uh, remember him now because he was a jokester and uh, just <laughs> he nailed it. I said, and that really made me happy because although I still hadn't really found out at that time too much about why he left camp except he had a bad knee, when Billy Duell uh, just really identified him and described him to a T. And then a little later on in my search for collectibles, I found a um, NFL yearbook from 1940, which listed all the players on the different teams, 32 players from the Cardinals, and my dad was listed there. So that's one of my most treasured publications. That name was listed there. He made an impression on Coach Jimmy Clinton, then decided, ah, I guess I better go find something else to not get treated for this bad knee. <laughs> yeah. Wow. 
kind of reminds me of the, the Red okay. Grange story, you know, you, you know, blew a knee and something that would be, you know, a nine month fix now with rehab was basically mm-hmm. career and, you know, yeah, career deflecting, let's say. Yes. Yes. Yeah. He had to test it out a whole year. And even when he came back, he was mostly on defense, as you know. Uh, but yeah, so the yep. treatment is so different now for these guys. Totally. Yeah. Exactly. Joe, in your bio, you mentioned uh, you were a speaker at the Pro Football Hall of Fame on the origins of the NFL to help celebrate their 100th anniversary. Uh, you know, a question I have, and we've talked about this on the show several times, do you think the NFL does a good job in general celebrating its history? And in your opinion, did they miss an opportunity uh, on their 100th anniversary? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I'm a bit prejudiced, and I'd sure like to see the league do more honor to those early pioneers, the guys who didn't wear face masks, who knows were, noses were crooked, who had missing teeth, and who loved every minute of it. Um, we, we, we see the Hall of Fame. There's always, I'm not going to say confusion or complaints, but there could be a few more seniors that maybe should be in there than aren't. And as the voters get younger and the players are so distant yeah. in the past, how can you describe totally. me? You haven't seen them play. Film doesn't exist, so you just have the newspaper stories. But, yeah, I would like to see the league open up the Hall of Fame to a few more uh, of these pioneers that meant so much to the league. And if you asked me to identify them, I probably couldn't. But, for example, Chris O'Brien, the guy who founded the Cardinals, uh, yep. mm-hmm. I think he should get some consideration he he withstood when the, the new American Football League came in in 1926, held out. And uh, one of the things in the book which I tried to do was to show the, the great influence that Chris O'Brien had on the early league and how he helped hold it together. Of course, then he sold it for $12,500, and today it's worth $3.2 billion. But um, <laughs> you can't really foresee in the future. Well, I always say that the NFL the NFL celebrates their history 1970 up after the merger with the yeah. AFL, and they I seem agree. to ignore. And Joe, and I, Joe and I have talked about this numerous times. They have ignored 1921 to 1969 to a large degree and all the other leagues that came and went throughout the, that period of time at the same, at the same time. So, you know, we, we use as an example that 100-year commercial that they recorded and right. we're, you know, we're saying, okay, so this seems to be, you know, a ha- you know, a handful of mentions from fifties and sixties, and then everything else is current history, and that's it. And what's the point of that? You know, the the league has a very, very large, very, very complex history that should be celebrated, and and just to me, it's ignored oh. in too many ways. It's mm-hmm. it's not good. It's not good for the not good for the game, in my opinion. Yeah. And uh, we talked. I'm sorry. Go ahead. ahead. I said that commercial you mentioned was and hilarious, but of course they had one word in there that I liked about it was buttkiss. But we can't go by that. But no, you're right. Say from (laughs) seventy where the emphasis was, and it was nice to see him flying across tables, and it was really cool to see all the players. But I'd like to see Patty Driscoll or Red Grange in there, or even Curly Lambeau. Some of those uh, those early players would have been nice to find a way to sneak them in. Maybe they could have had a picture on the wall behind the flying tables and the cake getting hmm. smashed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I have an absolute smile on my face. You mentioning those names. I mean, perhaps it's because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, most of the way through your book, but. Like the you know the Sunday night football commercial, you notice when they're talking about you know all rights are owned by the NFL and you know you know you know reproduction expressive prohibitive. You notice they kind of flash to some players, and the first player up that gets about half a second is Red Grange. Yeah. Uh, here's half a second of the man who probably saved not probably the man who saved the NFL. You know who you know. You know, the, you know, Mara, the owner of the Giants, wept at the gate receipts, you know, when Grange played mm-hmm. the Giants at the end of uh, 25. You know, it's just 
the man who saved the NFL, literally. Uh, and get half a second at the intro of a game, you know, is his nod. Grange, as you know, had such an impact. And I think even for the Bears itself, and part of my book relies quite a bit on the recently released Dutch tournament yeah. collection, you know, where yeah. Dutch was the cold palace of the Bears oh. in the 20s, and, and the stuff is now at the Hall of Fame. And so for the first time, we're seeing the finances and the actual records. Yeah. And you can you can learn so much. I learned, and so I wanted to do a, a book on that, but kind of combine it into my own research. But, for example, when Grange had his, his first game at Wrigley Field, we see all sorts of crazy numbers thrown out there, but there it is. The record typed up with the gate receipts that there was about 34,000 people. And everybody yeah. else was sitting free trying to get in. But what we don't know, and what I learned from the Sturman records, was roughly a month before, the Bears couldn't even get Wrigley Field for a Sunday game. They had to play at what was called the DePaul Stadium, DePaul Field at DePaul University, and there was something like 1,100 there. And so the total share that the Bears made, so to speak, was $253,000, $253. Here I am looking again at Grange. Didn't cover the payroll. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, uh, of course, you, you, when, when the tour, yeah, when they went you to New York, we never saw 7,000 people at a pro game before. <laughs> yep. You nail it. The sternum numbers uh, I read, because I've, I've heard wild variations of how many people attended that first Thanksgiving game, and you nailed yeah. it. I think it was like 31,140 was Dutch's, you know, mm-hmm. official, you know, gate. Store. But you did a, an amazing job. I had no idea how much C.C. Pyle bent the Bears over with, uh, with their cut of it. It's like, you know, he got 50%. Yeah. And they were, and you you did a really good job reminding us that by the way the Bears were named as second on the contract. It's like you'll provide the Bears in uniform and pay all transport fees. The Bears were a sideshow to the the Red yeah. Range show. They were along for the ride. Um, yeah. The one neat thing that is also in there, you may have seen it, was uh, you know Hallis had always complained how there was no money in pro football when he had the first game after they moved. <laughs> Chicago, and he had to wait before the as the gate opened so he could steal ten dollars and go across the street and buy tape to tape the players. <laughs> yeah, Being, he, he didn't get the big share he thought he would. Sternman and Ellis paid themselves each a twenty-five thousand dollar bonus at the end of the nineteen twenty-five season, which was humongous money back then. Huge, huge. I mean, what, that would be the equivalent of about you know, over a million dollars now, wouldn't it? I mean, or, or more. Oh, yes. That would be so. But yeah. uh, sadly, and the sermon papers show us that it was pretty much gone. The Bears opened up the 1931 season, I believe it was, with $258 in the bank. And I was just shocked when I <laughs> see these numbers. They got the, he got the checkbook of Dutch Sturman and the Bears in there in the collection. So it just Absolutely. really opened your eyes what was going on in football or what was not going on. Absolutely. And yours is the first book I've read that gets to incorporate that, you know, that collection, uh, you know, in into what I'm reading. So it's, I'm reading these numbers for the first time, which is what makes the book so enjoyable and just so detailed. And I just, I, I love it. Um, oh, I was kind you. of poking, poking, poking fun at you in our emails back and forth. Uh, the Cardinals <laughs> championship versus the Possville Maroons. I'm also, a, you know, a, a, you know, kind of a, you know, if you love football history, you love Possville, you know, the, you know, the Maroons. I'm wearing a Possville Maroons shirt right now, actually. My oh, wife loves cool. when I put that on. Uh, it, it, you know, so I, I was kind of, what is your take on that 1925 championship? The Maroons who took on, you know, the Notre Dame Four Horsemen, but Notre Dame disavowed any association with it. Uh, Beat them. Cardinals were deemed the champion because Joe Carr basically booted the the Maroons because of it. Do the Cardinals deserve that championship? Oh, boy, that's a tough one. You are are putting the old guy in the spot right here. What I tried (laughs) to do in the book is uh, go deeper than I've seen before and to get 
information from all sides about the Pottsville situation. It's the most intriguing and probably the most passionate subject in yes. early NF history. And as you mentioned, for any of the listeners, there was both teams looking to win the championship, and so many things happened off the field that really made things confusing. So what I want to do is provide a, a fair look at the whole Pottsville and Cardinals situation. As you mentioned, uh, Pottsville was denied a part of the championship or the championship because they were basically kicked out of the league by Joe Carr. Uh, you know, there's some holes in the history there as well, but uh, the yeah. Cardinals were, um, uh, of course, guilty, might say, of, of scheduling a couple of teams that were pretty much gone for the season. We had high school players playing from Milwaukee Badgers, I wanted to find out who they were and what happened to them. I wanted to find out how much Pottsville made on that Notre Dame game and who actually played for Notre Dame. So there's so many. It's, of course, were the ones who complained about Pottsville coming to Philadelphia, complained to Joe Carr. And then the biggest hole in the whole thing is, of course, uh, I think it was Doc Striegel from Pottsville calling the NFL office and, and indicating throughout the years that he got permission to play and then Probably. Joe Carr said, oh, we didn't, I didn't give permission, but Joe Carr had an appendectomy. And so he missed a, a couple of weeks of work beforehand. So, uh, and the other one thing you might say, if you're a Cardinals fan, well, the Cardinals, if they got those two extra wins, they finished a half a game ahead of Pottsville in the, in the title chase. Uh, Pottsville, of course, had a game scheduled the day afterwards with uh, Providence the day after they played Notre Dame, which would have been another league game, but Joe Carr prohibited them from playing because they uh, didn't follow his order to not play in the Notre Dame game. You know, and I, I look back in, in my life, I was in marketing, and I can only imagine the folks from Pottsville getting excited about playing the Notre Dame folks. And what a fantastic idea, having the players from the best team in college the year before and the fabled four horsemen playing at the time the team that was in first place or second place in the National Football League because there's still a lot of controversy about the NFL being a place you don't want your oldest son to play in because it's corrupt yeah. and gang yeah. and all sorts of infidels are in that, in that league. So uh, you would have to start promoting and marketing, which is what the uh, Maroons did even before they played the Cardinals in December uh because the following week is when they were going to play Notre Dame. So there's a, a lot of information that I was able to find out and a lot of misinformation that still gets posted about who did what or what happened. Long story short, Joe Carr said, no, you're out of the league. And so the Cardinals, even though they had a – and this is what will really get people going. The Cardinals did have a better record because they scheduled two extra games against teams that were probably largely defunct. Was it illegal? No. Unethical? Yeah, probably. Uh, if if yep. the manager, Chris O'Brien, knew, but that gave the Cardinals a better record. But the other thing that uh, goes along with that game, which played, I believe, December 6th of 1925, is both teams claimed it was for the NFL championship. The newspapers claimed it was for the NFL championship. In fact, the Chicago Tribune said, yeah, they're playing today. It's going to be their clash on the gridiron as a postseason yep. matchup. And, well, the league actually ended December 20th. And so there were eight different teams who played in December, after December 1st, in the league, because they could go to December 20th. And the other thing we got to look at is the Cardinals and the Bears scheduled a game December 20th, which I found out in the uh, Sterneman papers, uh, telegram from uh, George Hallis and Dutch Sterneman, Brian of the yeah. Cardinals, saying we should play on December 20th. It sure, even though the Bears and Pottsville had already scheduled a game. So there's so many wacky things going on here. Uh, so again, wild what west. I tried to do was wild provide west. Wild West and provide some neutral information, what's going on. And I think to wrap up my <laughs> my talking too much, what I get excited about, I love the history, is that the promoter of the game with the, the Notre Dame folks, uh, he failed to come up with the money after the game. And that was something I had not learned. Pottsville and Notre Dame, they sued the guy, and he got off. He said it wasn't his fault. 
that Pottsville did something. I've got to find those court papers. Maybe I have. So Pottsville didn't make money on that game. (laughs) Yeah, Doc. Doc, in your book, you describe how Doc's like, I mean, because I think they played to 9,000 people, but across the way, the Frankfurt Frankfurt team played to 8,000. So they barely drew more than a normal game. Uh, But... Yeah, I, I, I'm a I'm a big Pottsville guy, and we, you know, we consider that to be the stolen championship of 25. And you mentioned in your preface, you know, that it wasn't until the Bidwells took over the the team, you know, that O'Brien was like, nope, uh, you know, nope, the uh, uh, Pottsville beat us December 6th. They beat us resoundingly, 21 to seven. That was the championship. I don't care if they were kicked out of the league. We don't deserve that. And then when Bidwell took over the family, they started claiming that championship. So yeah. there's, you know, there's about a 20 year gap there as well, or, or plus. Yeah, Chris O'Brien did refuse it because back then there were no playoffs, so that game was not for a championship. It was just another regular season game. And then the league Correct. owners got in the following February and, and gave it to the Cardinals because Pottsville was not in the league and. Cardinals had a better record, but what if what if Pottsville had been able to play Providence the day after? Would they have won? Would Pro, would Pottsville schedule additional games like the Cardinals did? So there's yep. so much unknown, and I guess as a researcher, I have to go by what I can hold my hand and say, "Oh, here's the decision February 26th." But yep. there's a lot of ammunition on both sides for this very again yep. still engaging topic. Yep. Well, the Cardinals lost to Pottsville 21-7 on December 6th, and then they yep. racked and sacked on December 10th. They played the Milwaukee. They played the Milwaukee Badgers and won 58 to nothing. They were fined a thousand dollars for bringing high schoolers in to play for the Badgers to to bolster their win percentage, which was later which was later removed. Uh, and two days later, December 12th, they played against the Hamilton or the Hammond Pros, 13 to nothing. They won most of the team members of the Hammond pros had gone on to their normal jobs. Uh, cards had lost to Hammond in week one, six to 10. Yeah, yeah. You know, so a partial team, you know, after, yeah, just, it, it just, my, my takeaway from your book and my previous research on it is just, it was literally the wild, wild west. It was just, well, let's <laughs> play one more game. Let's stack it with, you know, a partial team, uh, high schoolers, as you as you, you know you you noted, uh, and it was just yeah the win percentage. I mean, it doesn't matter if you know Pottsville beat the the Cards. It's that you know they they squeezed in a couple more games. But in your opinion, right here on the record, is that a Cardinals championship? You know, I do support what the NFL did at the time, and I I couldn't go back and change it. What's funny, and one thing we haven't discussed, is I believe the NFL owners said they were going to take away the Milwaukee win, and that never happened. Uh, And so that would have left the team pretty much with identical records at the time. So, uh, again, one of those things that 98 years later we look at and said, why didn't they do that Uh, if they felt so strongly about it? So, again, difficult, difficult subject. Joe, you've, you've interviewed so many different people over the years um, for your books and for articles you've written, so on and so forth. Do you have any interesting stories you can share with the audience on uh, some of those uh, people you interviewed and you talked to about uh, information for your books and, and or uh, articles that you've written? Yeah, I think uh, I enjoyed – I was able to talk to a whole bunch of old Chicago Cardinals uh, from the 1947 team, and my favorite was Chet Bulger, who was a old tackle out of Auburn. And Chet, every time he would open his mouth to tell a story, I would almost fall out of my chair, but he talked about <laughs> how one summer his coach, Jimmy Councilman, said, he said, Chet, you got to gain some weight. And Chet said to Jimmy, well, what should I do, coach? He said, well, I want you to go home and – drink a lot of beer and eat a lot of steaks and come back 30 pounds heavier. So I said, what did you do, Chad? He said, well, I followed the coach's order, of course. My wife didn't like it, but I followed the coach's order. And so Chet had great stories. He talked about uh, when NFL players got $2 a game for meal money and how he and his 
roommate, which is Rob Morrow on the road, put that $2 together and bought a bag of sliders, he called them. Well, in Chicago, sliders are these little tiny hamburgers. I don't know if you guys have the pleasure of not having them there, but they're not very healthy. And he said with the money left over, they each bought a quart of buttermilk. Again, something else which I've never and hopefully will never have to taste. But he said, yeah, we, we got there day before the game, and we had our bag of sliders, and we each had our quart of buttermilk, and we, we oh sat gosh. by the window, opened it, and put our feet up and said, man, it doesn't get any better than this. So, uh, <laughs> And I, I, didn't, I didn't interview uh, Bulldog Turner, but I have a favorite quote from him that I use in the book. And Bulldog apparently liked to have a beer or two after a game. And one day he was sitting on a windowsill of a second-floor apartment building and maybe leaned back too far to have that beer or maybe he had too many beers, but he fell out the window, hit the awning on the first floor, but landed surprisingly on his feet. And when a Chicago cop saw him come out land, he said, Hey, buddy, what's going on here? And Bulldog slurred a little bit and said, I don't know, Asifer, but I just got here myself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. my gosh. I've never heard that before. Bulldog. Wow. <laughs> you know, and, and probably the most inspirational gentleman I met was Mats Pinelli. You may have heard about him who uh, left right before World War II started. He was uh, a star fullback in Notre Dame. And he volunteered even before we were at war and unfortunately was in the Philippines the day after Pearl Harbor happened. He was captured and spent the entire war in Japanese uh, prison camps, including being oh, part of boy. the baton. And he, his his tale is so inspiring, uh, how they marched the prisoners 60, uh, 60 miles. Uh, it doesn't seem like 60 miles be that bad, but in the tropical heat without food or water, it was devastating. And Mott's told the story about the only way they survived was they would put their shirts out at night, and hopefully they would have dew on it in the morning that they could squeeze out and drink. And what he went through, but he came back, uh, which was an amazing story, uh, in August of 45. And he told the story about how he was hospitalized. He had gone from 210 pounds down to 90 pounds. Oh, my God. Mr. Charles Bidwell, the owner of the Cardinals, came up to see him and said, Mots, you know what? We're so glad to have you back, but we need you to sign your contract to renew the contract you signed before the war. And Tonelli said, I'm not in any shape to get out there on the field. And Bidwell said, well, we, we think you'll be out there. And so he got in one game in 1945. And because of that, he was able to get, which wasn't a great pension apparently at the time, but credit for playing in the league throughout the four years he was off to war. He told me, he said, you know, I'm always grateful to the Bidwells for what they did for me, and he got his pension. But it's a wonderful guy, wonderful, wonderful. But those are some of the the stories you pick up, and as they're older in life, and they, they feel, I guess, more relaxed about talking about it and Many stories come out, so I've always enjoyed it when I was able to get in touch with some of the other players. Mm. Love it. Wow. You, you, you heard Bob and I talk, and we're collectors through and through. I heard you mentioned, uh, you know, that your your grandmother talked about a letter George Hallis wrote to your father. Uh, are you a collector, or do you collect memorabilia from your, you know, from your your books, things that you've encountered? Yeah, probably an amateur collector. I started out with baseball stuff, and I have one of those familiar stories where I collected magazines, baseball, and football throughout my early days and went to college and came back, and this huge pile, which I would love to have today, was no longer there. My mom thought it was cutting dust, but she did not get to my baseball cards. So although I do not have a Mickey Mantle rookie card, I've got some early Mickeys in there and Hank Aaron, Willie Mays. So I don't uh, collect it per se anymore, but I still have everything. And, um, you know, we are just talking, Bob was talking about the national show coming up in Chicago. I was planning on going to that. I thought maybe I'll someone look at these things. Uh, but it's the same week as our Professional Football Researchers Association meeting in Pittsburgh. So maybe I'll divide myself so I can be in both spots. But uh, I do collect now um, 
anything documents, autographs of Chicago Cardinals only, uh, not programs. I tried to find out uh, stuff that's interesting, whether it be a contract. My most favorite possession, I think, is um, Ernie Nevers, you may have heard of, in 1929, scored all 40 points for the Cardinals when they defeated the Bears, I think it was 40-6. to six. It's still the longest individual record or the oldest individual record in the National Football League, but I was able to find a letter he wrote to someone talking about that game and get it framed up with his photo and autograph. So uh, that's my favorite, which is in my proudly in my office. So that kind of stuff is what I'm what I'm looking for. That's really cool. Where is that Grange letter, or excuse me, that uh, Hallis letter that uh, you know that uh, Mr. Hallis wrote to your dad to try and entice him to the Bears? Yeah, still have that at home in a frame along with my dad's contract and uh, this that infamous so letter. Cool. I'm Jimmy Councilman saying, yeah, look forward to training camp. Bring your own shoes and shoulder pads. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then later years I've been collecting, going back to baseball and trying to get autographs from players that I knew as a kid. Of course, they're not around too much anymore, but – uh, got Joe DiMaggio and Ted Williams and, and Mickey Mantle, of course. Um, so those are nice to have. A lot of those I have framed in a, in a collection in my house. Mm. That's really um, cool. You, Joe, you're – oh, sorry. Go ahead, Bob. I was just going to say we only got a couple more minutes, um, and I want our audience to – if you could, Joe, tell our audience uh, how they can purchase your book, and any other information you'd like to share with them on it. Oh, great. That's very kind of you. And, Bob and Joe, thank you again for having me on. And the book is called Bears versus Cardinals, the NFL's Oldest Rivalry. It's on Amazon or directly from the publisher, which is McFarland. Uh, Amazon, I believe, right now and uh, has a little sale on some of the sports books, so it would be available there. So, But thank you very much. Well, and I will – personally advocate for this book i bought it after i asked joe to come on the show and i uh received it quickly i'm about 75 percent of the way through and probably one of the top five sports books i've read uh along with as you mentioned your preface is what a small world chris willis's red grange book uh oh yes yeah man just what a great book i was just i, I just had a smile on my face the last week or so while reading it <laughs> Great. Thank you so much. And I always uh, recommend folks to check out Chris's books. We've collaborated uh, on each other's projects the last couple, three years. He's amazing. So it's it's wonderful. I always look forward to reading his stuff. And the new yeah. book he's got out, Uncle Nagurski, is great. Yep. Chris has promised me that he's going to work on a Steve Largent book next after he cleared the <laughs> way with Bronco. Yep. <laughs> Now that he's got that Bronco book out of the way, he can work on Largen. (laughs) (laughs) Joe, thanks for being on. I appreciate it. We'll be be in touch. Great. Great guy. Appreciate it. Thank you you so much. Take care. Bye now. Joe Zamba, author. Pick up his book. And we're down to two minutes, Joe. Two-minute warning. I'm going to hand off to you what you pick up on tonight's show. Bob, no kidding. One of the best books I've read. Uh, yeah, I highly recommend it. I had a, I have about half a page of notes that I just wanted to ask Joe that I'll probably follow up when. And it was just, it's funny. I'd hit certain things and I'd just be like, that's amazing. I mean, Pat, Patty Driscoll owning a third of the Bears at some point and then, uh, and then yep. getting sued for being under contract with the Chicago Cardinals. And it's like, well, whatever happened to that? Does Patty, you know, did they deal that off? I don't know. He, he he really, in his book, he really hammered down on the point that obviously Hallis was entertaining bringing Grange on while he was still a, a, a college athlete, which was strictly forbidden in the NFL at the time. But, you know, obviously he played his last college game against Ohio and then three days later sat on the bench in Chicago uh, for a game and then played that Thanksgiving game against the Cardinals. That was a 0-0 tie. Um but no. really brought up a good point about the timing of it all. And But Grange was able to say, I have not signed a single thing. The arrangement was with C.C. Pyle and with George Hallis or C.C. Pyle to bring Grange. And it was just, it was so much 
stuff going on back then in the NFL, and the best way to describe it is literally the wild, wild west. It's such, such a good book. Right. Right. Great book. I, I highly recommend it also. We're out of time. <clears throat> Again, check out our website, gridarygreatsmagazine.com. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs> Ran it up to the wire, huh, Bob? I love it. <laughs> Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Do you wish you knew more about the 100 seasons of the NFL? You're in luck because you found the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. From the founding of the league in an auto showroom, all the way to what it is today, America's favorite sport and a behemoth of an industry. My name is Ernie Chapman. Football is my passion, and I want you to come along with me each week to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board, my DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.